Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi everyone, my name is Joel Blake Obey. I'm an inclusive business expert and I deliver my work and experience through fintech, global trade and social impact. I'm the founder and CEO of the GFA Exchange, a fintech startup. I'm also the founder of the Cludine Group, which is a business consultancy service where we try and help organizations be more inclusive and more diverse about how they grow their business. And I look forward today to speaking with the formidable and the fantastic and the amazing Jonathan Bowman Perks. Thanks, Joel. You're very kind. And I'm very humbled to have you with all the experience you've got, particularly with your background in diversity and inclusion. But you've just done so much in Birmingham and in the fintech world. So great to have you on board. And again, our mutual friend, Rara Plumtree, met you and was inspired by you. You made her cry. You asked her about her life story, and it's quite a story that she has to tell. But let's talk about your life story, um, because I'm interested in your upbringing, particularly your father, who was quite influenced on you, your mother, who stood by you through those difficult days. And as you grew up, that, that sort of conflict that you had between the different worlds you found yourself in, I found that fascinating. Just tell us more about that, Joel. Well, well, Jonathan, thank you again for the opportunity to, to speak with you today, because it's not many, not often you meet people who are just themselves all the time and share similar values. And it's those values that I think were founded in my own, my own upbringing. Um, you know, I'm just a normal working class young man from, from an inner city area of Birmingham. Um, I didn't go to university. I didn't have the greatest start, like so many people um, who've, who've gone up in that environment. But I, I certainly knew from a very younger age that I didn't want to become the person that society was saying I ought to be, or at least what we felt growing up in that environment that we could only be. Um, when you come from a particular minority group, you might come from a particular class, you come from an area that's so-called disadvantaged, you're more, you immediately start to think about and be conditioned by that environment. Um, but for me, it was my mum who was that strength for me to keep me focused that I was worth more, even though I was in an environment where everyone felt, well, this is it, you know, this is all that we've got. Um, you know, there was low unemployment, high crime rate. Um, yet at the same time, as much as people will call that disadvantaged, you could leave your front door open, neighbours would come around, you'd share a cup of tea. There was almost unwritten codes and rules of growing up in that particular environment. So you learned certain disciplines and certain values from a very young age, just from being in that environment. Um, but certainly was shaped by my mother. In fact, I remember there was, um, you know, she had two jobs in the day, had a, a cleaning job in the evening type of thing. And um, I mean, one evening um, she sent me upstairs in the flat to be babysat by the lady upstairs. And the lady upstairs was a woman called Anne, um, a Scottish woman. And from Glasgow and then God rest her soul, she passed away many, many years now. But um, as a young black boy going upstairs with a middle-aged Scottish woman, 
babysitting. I was exposed to diversity at that very young age because she treated me as her own son. You know, her and my mom were great friends. It wasn't about barriers. It was about challenges, about culture. It was about the, the understanding that we had. And she used to tell me great stories about, you know, growing up in Scotland. And there were so many similarities between the stories I'd heard about my own community and so forth. So I was very influenced by my mom in terms of the strength and trying to help me to be the best I can be. And for who she was at that age and shaping my thinking around what it meant to be yourself, but be inclusive. And then my father, my father wasn't in the home, but he ran a nightclub, um, which was Europe's largest nightclub at the time in terms of um, entertainment, the, old, the largest black owned nightclub. And um, so when I was with my father, it was a complete champagne lifestyle. It was a complete difference. Um, you know, I would be around celebrities. I would see great clothes, great cars, really great lifestyle. So growing up where I was with my mom, and then when I see my dad, it was that old environment. It was just a, a really crazy contrast for me. Um, a really, really crazy contrast. And I would say I lost my identity for a while within that contrast. Mm. Um, so to the point where I, I had to really challenge whether I wanted to be here in my mid-teens um, because I just felt like I was so lost. I wasn't accepted no more in my community because they could see I was different. I was exposed to difference. I was reading. I'm an avid reader, so I was always reading books. I was always spouting knowledge, etc. So it just made me really think about the fact that if I wanted to be successful, whatever that meant to me at that time, it had to be on my own terms and my own rules. So really interesting. Going back over saying, didn't know whether I wanted to be here. Yeah. Now, sometimes people might want to take their own life. Other times they might want to move to somewhere else. Which was yours? It was the former. Um, I literally was a typical, <laughs> you could write it as a proper, a proper novel, to be honest with you. It was a, a dark winter's evening. Uh, there was snow on the ground. And, <laughs> and it was literally that it was a dark winter's evening. And um, again, my mum had gone to work. It was one of the days where Anne was, was ill, so she could look after me. Um, so my mum did what many parents might have done at that time. You no, know, lock the door, free knocks, it's me. Don't open the door to anybody else. I'll be a couple of hours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I was very good at hiding how I was feeling at the age of 13, 14 from my mum and from my friends. You know, it was almost like you have to be seen to be okay um, just to survive, you know. And so, but I just wasn't okay in this particular evening. And I decided that I'd do everybody a favour by not being here. Um, so I walked onto the balcony, um, climbed onto the balcony, and I spent probably about 40 minutes maybe. But it felt like I was just sitting on the contemplating all the reasons why I should jump and where I where I was sat you couldn't see down into the darkness um, but there was a lamppost in a path at the bottom of the flat so you could see someone walking through but they couldn't see up because it was so dark and I remember I was sitting there and, and I heard a lot of humming and singing coming down the path and I'm thinking that's weird and, I'm, and I wouldn't say I'm religious Jonathan but I'm definitely spiritual and I think that was one of those religious pseudo spiritual moments because the singing was almost angelic to me. And it took me away from what I was thinking and just listening. And I was like, who's that coming through? And I knew at some point I have to pass under the lamppost and I would see. They wouldn't see me, but I would see. So it's like a movie. I'm like, who's that? And when I saw who it was, it was the area, the, the lady who was the prostitute for the area that everyone knew. And she was carrying bags from a well-known shopping chain which is well regarded these days but in the past it wasn't and I won't say but 
she was humming, singing, came under the light. I saw her, she didn't see me. She carried on through the light, carried on walking. And I just kept on listening till I could hear her no more. The moment I couldn't hear her, I jumped off the balcony back into the house and I said, I'm never going to feel like that ever again. Because who am I to pity myself when someone who, and it was wrong for me to judge her. I don't know why she was doing what she was doing. But who am I to pity myself when somebody who's living a life in that way is happy? Yeah, yeah. And that completely changed my mindset. And that's been a fundamental, that was the thing that changed my life, literally. She never knew I was there. I never made her know I was there. I don't know if she's alive anymore, but she saved my life, literally. Yeah. Um, And it was fundamental for me. Well, uh, being a man who's also stood on a ledge and thought of jumping and killing myself, um, when I went through a very difficult divorce and money was incredibly tight, I, I really relate to that. But it's not my story, it's, it's your story. And, and I find that very powerful. Have you, have you managed to get away from ever that, that thought coming back to you again? Have you yeah, cleared that from your mind? Because it is important. You don't, yeah. for, for me, never. Because when I objectively looked at myself then, you know, maybe a couple of years after that, actually, even as a 16, 17 year old, I, my mindset was, was years ahead at that point because I, that affected me so much. You know, it was it was guilt, it was um, shame, it was self-pity. Everything was wrapped up into that experience for me. But it was also hope and positivity and opportunity. And I just choose to focus on the latter to run the rest of my life. Um, but without hiding away from that situation also. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't want it to be something that would chip, chip, chip away at success in the future. So... You know, life is life. You go through certain things and you you you, you learn from it. You, you take on board the lessons and you keep going. Um, but I don't forget. No, and I bet you won't. And in, in our lives, we very good book called Life is in the Transitions. And we have highs and lows. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine one of your highs um, was when you got the Order of the British Empire, the OBE. Mm-hmm. Now, what was it you got the OBE from and who gave you the OBE? Well, that was 100% one of the proudest moments of my life. Um, so 2016, um, it was for services to business support and enterprise. Um, and that was in that 2016, I'd, I'd, I'd gone from, you know, that kind of 13, 14 year old with no kind of sense of direction within himself to becoming an award-winning entrepreneur at that point. Um, I'd been able to give so much back to the community at that point. I'd taken my life experiences and turned it into a positive thing, which enabled me to help, you know, young offenders coming out of prison, help them to set up their own businesses in a, in a legal way, not using those skills in, a, in, a, in an illegal way. Um, I'd been able to help young mums who were wanting to get back into work. You know, I'd, I'd been able to really take those life lessons and just go from a place of passion to give back. And so being awarded that, that recognition, and it was from Prince William, Unfortunately, yeah, the Queen was, wasn't well on that particular day, um, which is a shame in some sense, but it was still great to be in Buckingham Palace. My mother and father were there, and as two Caribbean parents who'd grown up, you know, from Jamaica and the motherland and Queen's head on, on cups and, and tea towels and, you know, to go from all the struggle that they'd gone through to be and do the best that they could for, for me and, and family to now be in Buckingham Palace to see their son being awarded for just the, the, the discipline and the values they instilled, you know, 
it was the first time I saw my father cry in my life. And my father is a, you know, really staunch Caribbean, you know, intelligent man, you know, studied law, blah, blah. But, you know, it doesn't really let his guard down so often. But to see him shed a tear and my mom crying and my family, it was just like, it just got me going as well. So it was, it was a proud moment. Very proud moment, Joel. And, and congratulations. That, that is no small achievement. And as I mentioned to you, my best mate, Errol Stewart from, uh, from Jamaica, and, and we still are in touch every week. We drop each other notes. And uh, Lee and I have been over to see him two or three times. Um, and uh, he's in, both in Kingston on the north near Ocho Rios, uh, where we got married um, now some six years ago. Um, so that was a great, that was a great moment. And, and what about, you've mentioned one of the dark moments where there you were sitting on the ledge thinking about, taking your own life as a young 13, 14 year old. Uh, what, what has been another perhaps a business start moment that you found really tough? And what did you learn about it as a leader, which will help other people from the lessons that you've learned? I think a, a, a business start moment that comes to mind was, um, yeah, it, it was when I'd, um, so in a previous startup business, I'd put everything into it. It was, it was one of those, you've got to make or break. Um, and unfortunately it, it broke um, and it nearly broke family. It nearly broke home. It nearly broke everything that I held dear. Um, and it was a dark moment because, you know, I'd put everything into this business. It just didn't work. And, um, but I didn't understand the ripple effect it would have on other aspects of my life. I just, I was just in this kind of arrogant business. I'm going to make it successful. I'm going to make it work mentality all the way through. But it was the first and I'd say the harshest time of getting an understanding of what it means to fail in business. Mm. Um, and I saw it as a failure then. I see it as a lesson learned now, but then it was a failure. Um, and um, the, sh the, the shame it made me feel having to face my wife and my family and to say that I didn't deliver. And everything that we've built together is in jeopardy because I didn't deliver. And it's not about male ego and alpha male and submissive woman or nothing like that. You know, it's a much more of it, I believe is inequality in that sense. But as a man who wants to provide for his family at that time, um, it was a real dark moment because it, it just challenged everything that I felt I was capable of. And, and so, but it was through the, my very same family and friends who saw things that I didn't see myself at that time that got me through yeah, um, and helped me to realize that, okay, it's gonna be a bumpy road back, but you haven't failed and learn from that failure. And I think the biggest thing I learned is that you never actually fail. You just learn how not to do something. And as an entrepreneur and as a businessman, that's been a lesson that I've embraced and I take into everything that I do. If it goes wrong, right? Why did it go wrong? What can we learn? What are we going to do next time? Let's crack on. We haven't got time to cry over spilt milk. Let's get back on it. And so that circumstance built a level of resilience and relentlessness. Like I'm a, I'm a typical Torian. So like, if I got it in my head, you can't tell me it's not going to happen. Like, so you either be with me or you get out of my way because you're going to get trampled on. Like yeah. that's my mentality. So, but it's born out of things like that because I know what it's like to get it wrong and I know what the impact is. Um, and so, yeah, that failure drove, drove my, my level of relentlessness in everything that I do now. 
Yeah, very true. And um, in the military, we have what we call after action reviews when something's happened, good or bad. Yeah. What worked well, www and EBI, even better if. Oh, so you're yeah. thinking about what did work, which you can leverage, but what would make it even better if you did that? So it's not just what were the problems, but what would make it even better? So you're starting to think of a solution to the problem. So it's a whole mindset thing. And whatever rank or grade you were from major when I was to sergeant to corporal to private soldier, mm. all four of us had equal voice. Mm. Talking about equal voice, you were saying that you, you've got a really great background in diversity and inclusion. Mm. Where, when did that start? And, and, and what would be your key message about diversity and inclusion before we go back to a lesson that you'd give it to your younger self. Just talk to me about where where that all began and, and perhaps a key message you want to say about diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I think for me, Jonathan, it started, I guess, maybe 2001. I was working for um, kind of the employment arm of the youth service. It was called Connections at the time. So I was an employment mentor. So I'd go to training providers, um, pupil referral units, community centres, and help young people learn CV skills, interview skills, um, you know, professional etiquette in the workplace, those types of things. Um, and so I'd meet such a diverse range of young talent that was often overlooked by mainstream society because they were young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so I did that for about three or four years. And then I realized in 2005 that I could do what I was doing for them for myself because it became about numbers rather than the quality of support for those young people. And I was just deeply passionate that every opportunity um, there's opportunities for everyone, but you've got to give people the, the opportunity to take them. You've got to create an inclusive environment so they can be their best selves. Um, and so I just decided that diversity and inclusion was the area I wanted to really focus my career in, but not from a direct Equal Opportunities Race Relations Act alone perspective, mm. but much more from, isn't diversity and inclusion just a natural thing that we should all be welcoming and embracing and seeking yeah. why do we challenge each other because of differences surely the differences is what makes the difference Correct. surely it's about the learning through our differences that makes us all greater and i just couldn't get in my head why you know race meant a challenge or gender meant a challenge or age meant a challenge or disability or whatever and you know i could argue that i was maybe quite naive about that in the very early days and thinking everything's going to be hunky-dory from that basis um but that then grew into a recruitment company for young people. Then it became a recruitment company for university graduates from diverse backgrounds. Then it became a business consultancy, which I've now been running for the last 12 years. So it's just been a bit of an evolution, if you like, from that. I think the key, the key message, or I guess the key learning from that is that you should, and personally for me, one of my mantras is about maximizing potential, regardless of any difference. I don't care what you look like, sound like, your size, your sexuality. I, I don't really care. I want to know who you are. Because if I know who you are as a person, or if I can help you to recognize who you are as a person, then you will deliver on your own potential. You yes. will then understand how you can make a difference, whether it's in your community, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your business for your customers. What's unique about you? Um, and so that for me has been a driver and that's why diversity and inclusion for me is not about the political or social or moral argument, although those are all admirable and relevant. It's about the reality. It's yeah. about the common sense of it all. Yeah. Um, and that's where I focus my energies on. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And, and in some ways, it should be just all around us. It's like that story of the, the analogy of the, the older fish swimming by two smaller fish. And the older fish, as he's swimming by, goes, the water's nice today. And the younger fish look at each other and go, what's he talking about? What's, what's water? And like, you want it to be a bit like that, that they go, it's just, it's just people are different. And they're not wrong. They're just different. And I was very lucky with my mother, Tricia, who brought us up in Halifax, that even though we had so very little, she would often find on the way back from church, she'd find some little old lady who was shuffling along with her supermarket bags with the no name on the side. And, <laughs> and she'd say, where are you having your lunch? And she said, I don't have lunch. And she said, well, you are now. And get in. And she'd invite her into the car and we'd all shuffle over a bit and she'd smell strongly of urine and she clearly hadn't washed. And, but that was just, we wouldn't comment that you do not comment about that. She's just different from you. And then she'd come and sit at our table with us and we'd just share the food a bit further with her. And, and so for me, when I went to Sandhurst, it, it, people from different countries and things, it wasn't unusual for me. You just, I, I actually made more friends with people who were more different than me than the other um, upper class white idiots who were from Eton or Harrow and thought they were something special and would be very superior with my colleagues who were from different Commonwealth countries or Arab countries. And, and they didn't really get it. And they were quite discriminatory and I think a bit racist. Um, this was, you know, back in, goodness, uh, where are we now? Can I even remember now? Um, 1980, maybe. You know, it, it was completely, utterly unacceptable, but they'd got away. But it just depends on your upbringing. Um, back to you were helping younger people, yeah. CVs and advice what to do. Um, if you went back and you met the 18-year-old Joel Blake, mm -hmm. what bit of advice would you give your younger self? Well, it's a really great, great question to go on, Jonathan. I think there are a number of things I think I would share, but I think, I think the key thing for me would be you know, never forget where you come from, but know where you're going. That's lovely. Um, I think as as a young person, and, and to be fair, I think it's not just a young person thing, if I'll be honest with you. I think, you know, it was founded in that, but I, I would say to, to anyone, it's whether you're, you know, young, old, business leader, whomever you are, um, never forget where you come from is what gives you that kind of authentic, grounded sense of humility when things go really, really well. But it also gives you a compass when things go really, really bad and, and go wrong because it's your grassroots and your core and your values that really drive your success, not the environment that you're in. Yeah. Um, you know, I always say to people who call me, you know, multi-awarding entrepreneur, what have you, I'm like, well, I'm probably more of a businessman than an entrepreneur. I, you know, I haven't, you know, I will, I will be changing industries, don't get it twisted, but, you know, I see myself as someone who has just learned through business that it's about people first. Yeah. And my success has come from my ability to engage and build relationships because I genuinely care about people. Yeah. And I don't care who you are or what you look like. Like, I don't get phased by rank or authority or titles or what have you. I, I want to know who you are as a person and what can we do you know, what can I do to help you? How can you help me? How can we work together to help others? That's what really has driven my successes today. And it's also taken me through the dark times as well, because people remember that relationship, they remember, and they're willing to help you more because 
you're being authentic about yourself in those environments. Um, and so never forget where you come from is really important, but knowing where you're going is just as important because you've got to keep focused on what your end game, your North Star, your, your end point is, whatever you want it to be, your end vision, whatever that is. Be unapologetic about what you want to achieve. Very good. I, th I think too often people try and bring you back because they've got their own inadequacies on themselves and they try and manifest it on you. Um, and I've certainly played victim to that many, many times because I thought, okay, yeah, I need to really tune into what they're saying. I think they're right. Now it's like, you know what? I, I can help you to a point, but you need to bring something to the table as well to help yourself. Yeah. Because if you don't, I'm over there. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's interesting you talk about True North and compasses um, in our inspiring leadership work that Lee and I uh, do individually. And she did Inspiring Women Leaders and mine was Inspiring Leadership, the two books. We talk about True North and moral quotient as the first one of the eight components. Let's go around the compass and just quick fire a few just simple views from you. So MQ, your values and your morals. If there was two or three values that you live by, what are they? And what have you done when you when they slipped? And how do you get yourself back onto your values? Okay, so morally, um, I would say integrity, authenticity, and I'd say drive. Um, when I've slipped off the track with those three things, it's because I've got, I'd almost say a fourth, but I wouldn't say a direct value, but the support structure. I'm very, very choosy about who I surround myself by, um, surround myself with. That includes family, um, friends, networks. I'm very choosy because I know that I need the right people who would give me a hug when I need it, but also give me a kick up the arse if I need it to. <laughs> and so I'm very choosy about making sure I've got the right people who can do both. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so you, you mentioned family, both parents. Do you have any brothers and sisters? And you, you say you, you, got, you mentioned your wife. Do you have any children? Yes, I've got a 20-year-old son and a 29-year-old stepson. Wow. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's four adults in our house. <laughs> but, but um, you know, as, as, a, as a family, we're very independently minded, but we all have that level of respect of each other as individuals, you know. And so that's really great as a foundation to come back home to after coming out of the madness of a day. Um, in terms of brothers and sisters, got a younger sister on my mum's side, and then there's um, nine of us on my father's side. Wow. Yeah, my, you know, it's one of them things that it just, but as a family, we're really still, you know, really quite connected and, um, you know, we're always challenging and helping each other in our various different endeavours. So having those networks around you is really, really important. And are there any traditions like you all get together and have some pulled pork or anything, or is that too, is that too? <laughs> well, it, it depends really on which family house you go to, you know, especially like Christmas, you know, there's a traditional Caribbean breakfast combined with an English kind of, Christmas dinner and it's all at the same table. So <laughs> the flavors are just phenomenal. Um, but you know, it, it's just one of those things where, you know, culturally, even within your own family, you could be very different, you know. And so, you know, morally, as long as we've got the, all the same values, you know, we, we all share that and same with my friends and network. So it's fantastic. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Joel. So um, next one, PQ, purpose and meaning. So why do you do all the work you do? What What's your your core reason for getting out of bed in the morning, you know, your reason for being on the planet. It was, it was that lovely quote from Mark Twain, two most important days in your life, the day you were born, 
the day you found out why. So why were you born? What are you here to do, Joel? I was born to inspire others to be the best that they can be, regardless of who they are. Mm. Um, and it's something I'm still growing into, to be honest, and I think I always will. Yeah. Um, because you always find yourself in different situations and areas of growth. Um, but I, but it took me a while to understand myself enough to know that's what I'm about as a person. Mm. And that's what underpins everything that I do, business, community, social, globally. It's all about making sure that whether you're an organization with a particular purpose and a way of doing things or an individual with a particular skill set or what have you, let's make the best of you based on that. You know, don't try and copy anybody else because you don't know what they've gone through to get to that point when you see them and see them as being worth copying. Yeah. You don't understand everyone's every single part of their journey. Yeah. So focus on what you can do in your contribution. Yeah. That's, that's very good. That's, that's good for me. Yeah, I, I get that. But <clears throat> you don't, we don't know other people's journeys and, and who are we to judge them and, right. and to make comment on them when we haven't traveled even a few steps in their shoes. Um, talking about shoes and running, you were talking to me about running and we were talking about health quotient, which is the third of the eight components of inspiring leadership. And, and the health quotient doesn't often appear in leadership models, but it's crucial. Physical health, mental health and well-being. What do you do to keep yourself in good shape physically and mentally so you don't go back to those dark days of us being on the ledge? So what do you do? So physically, I, I, I run quite a lot. I try and make sure my, my nutrition's as correct as it can be. Um, I do a lot of kind of gym work and things as well, but I, I, I don't want to be you know, a big bodybuilder, but certainly keep, keep lean muscle as much as possible and um, stay physically fit like that. I think you need that energy when, when you're kind of in business. You need to be always be on your A game. So you know, that certainly supports me with that physically. Um, I think mentally... Um, I know when I need to cut off from business and I've tried over the years and I'm getting better at it, not 100% every single day, but I'm getting better at making sure I take time out away from what I'm doing, even if there's a hundred million things I need to do. Um, so that could be a 10 minute walk or it could be pick up a book and um, read a chapter. It could be talk to someone who's not involved in business at all and just have a conversation something that just mentally takes you away from the environment you know uh, and so in terms of managing diaries I always factor in my diary the things that are non-negotiables that are outside of business whether it's family stuff or what have you then everything else has to fit into what time I've got left and so I, I put non-business first as a mental activity for me so, you know, I know that, you know, I'm going to do that for the family or I'm going to do that for a friend or I'm going to do that for the community. But when I'm on my business, then those things don't enter into that space, but I'm okay because I know I've done it. That's good. Um, so mentally, I just create that break rather than a lot of people put business first and then forget about everything else that is actually oh, yeah. oh, more yeah. important. No, you raise a really good point. And particularly with the leaders that I'm talking to and coaching and their teams, in the pandemic, they need to have boundaries and people have let the boundaries completely go, which means they're working all hours. And I have to persuade my wife not to keep working until three in the morning on her charity, which she does in her spare time as the CEO, mm. as well as the, her coaching and her leadership work she does. But she's so passionate about it that, that she's got to be careful. She cares for herself as well. 
in looking after everybody else, you've got to look after yourself. Um, and then the next one, we used to call it IQ, but we found a much more important intelligence quotient is CQ, mm -hmm. cultural quotient. And I think you and I were talking about this before. Yeah. To you, what would cultural quotient and an ability to be adaptive to different cultures and mm -hmm. thinking about people in different ways, why would that be so important? And, and how have you developed your cultural quotient, your CQ? So my CQ, I would say, Jonathan, is about what I would call the chameleon effect. So what I mean by that is the ability to know who you are, but adapt to different environments. Um, and so that for me was rooted very early on in my friendships. You know, my, my best mate is a, is a white guy. We've known each other since we were 10, 11 years old. Um, I've never tried to be white. He's never tried to be black. We've just been who we are as individuals. And we've been through everything together. Best man at my wedding, the whole shebang. And so, you know, even as a child, growing up at that time, I was always aware of difference. Um, even within my own community, I was aware of difference as well because of the contrast of my own upbringing as well. So um, I've always seen cultural knowledge and understanding as being your authentic self, but understanding how you need to compromise to adapt into a given environment. Um, that doesn't mean losing yourself and that doesn't mean changing who you are. It just means knowing and understanding, I guess, the rules of the game in any particular environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, whether that's in a business environment, you know, there's certain things you don't do in a business environment. Things in a business environment won't necessarily always relate to a community environment. So it's just understanding how things yeah. are and how you adapt yourself. So that chameleon effect, I think, for me, is that cultural. cultural. Yeah, and closely linked to it, but slightly different. Uh, the sort of cultural uh, intelligence quotient is more environmental, but emotional intelligence, emotional and social intelligence, how you as an individual get on with one other person or read a room and a team. Um, how have you developed, because you've got great skills I found in our conversation before this meeting and since, how have you developed your ability to build rapport, to influence people who you have no command and control over them, that you're not their boss, but you've influenced people to get them to do amazing things, to help the community and other people, uh, the Commonwealth and the like? What, what have you done to develop those skills? Well, I mean, there were, there were two examples with that for me, but I think they're both rooted in the same thing, that I want to find out what is it that you want. If I know what you want, then I'm going to do my best to try and help you with that. Um, and, and, you know, you end up just cutting through all the nonsense, and let's be honest about well, that's what you really want, isn't it? Right, how can I help you with that? Um, you know, so two examples of that. I mean, um, when I was the, the former diversity advisor for golf, the sport, um, so I travelled around golf clubs across the country, helping them to think about diversity and inclusion in order to make themselves more sustainable as a golf club. This is on the back of the recession, um, 0809. Um, so if you imagine a six foot tall black guy going into a, some of the most wealthy golf clubs at that time, you know, me saying, hey, I think you need to be more diverse. Um, when, you know, the, the, member the member list is full to the hilt, they've got a waiting list of another hundred members that don't need to be diverse, quote unquote. Um, I remember actually going into one particular golf club, I won't mention, but I, I went into this golf club and my name is Joel Graham, Lloyd Graham Blake. So Lloyd and Graham are middle names. But some of them mistakenly put Joel Graham Blake as my, my surname. So they knew this person was coming to talk about diversity and inclusion to them and how that would help them as a golf club. But because my name was double barrel, they assumed I was going to be a white guy coming in to talk to them about golf. So I've walked into the into the kind of the the, the uh, 
the clubhouse boardroom, you know, old panelled walls, you know, pictures of the club captain from 18 Duck. I've walked in, everyone's around the table like a proper little industrial revolution boardroom, you know, shirt and tie, blazer sets, everyone's kind of ready. And I've walked in and I'm like, yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Joel Blake. Um, yes, as you can see, I am Chinese. And, <laughs> and, and I just I just cracked, and I probably should have said Chinese, but I, I just cracked the joke to try and break the ice because I saw the stairs that was in my direction yeah. as soon as I bust through that door. Um, but what that taught me, Jonathan, was a really interesting lesson because, you know, I went in and I talked about how diversity can help them, you know, drive membership if they think about it from a economic point of view, engaging new communities and so forth. So less about the kind of political and more about the economical contribution of engaging with diversity, etc. But by the end of that session, I found out someone's got a villa in Barbados, someone's ex-wife was, was Jamaican, and, and it made me realize that you can get yourself in situations and you can be the person with the negative perception. Yeah. And you have to be, uh, you know, aware and acknowledge your own emotional intelligence in an environment which you might even think is against you because yeah. you could be the problem. And in that particular instance, I have to admit, I was the problem because I came in with a perception of what they thought. And they might have had a perception to a point because of the double-barreled name. But by the time we got on a level and I found out what they wanted and I talked about how I can help them with what they wanted through diversity and inclusion, you know, it was probably one of the best meetings I ever had at that time. So um, that's, that's an interesting question. So, so well done. So here I am. I've got a double barrel name. I didn't used to have, but this is my second marriage. So I used both my father's name, uh, which is Perks, and my mother's name, which is Bowman. And my grandmother wanted to keep the Bowman name which to live on. So if you see someone like me with a double barrel name, Bowman Perks, and now you've met me, in your perception, am I different from how you thought I might be with a double barrel name? When I first heard of you and first engaged with you, yes, you've changed that perception. And even more so because you've obviously talked about your own background and there are many similarities in that, actually. Um, and then culturally in terms of your friends and Errol, et cetera. So you know, we are a representation of this very example that you need to be mostly intelligent enough to know who you are, but be able to enter into an environment and be open and vulnerable enough to learn about how somebody else is in order to get that real richness that is just sitting there and that real, it's such a powerful beauty in that kind of connection when you're just open in your authentic self because you don't need airs and graces at that point. You don't need... It's just two humans really just understanding each other. And that's an amazing thing. It is very interesting. And so you do have to be careful what's in a name, but people will load a name with all sorts of things. Like when I was at school in Halifax or pronounced when I was there as Halifax, because the H always drops off. <laughs> they used to say, come all L or Halifax, the good Lord deliver us. Because in all and Halifax, they kept a gibbet and they would hang people for stealing. They literally, until, until about the 50s, I mean, it was really late in the day, they had a gibbet to hang people. Um, but anyway, my best mate at school was Mohammed, mm -hmm. and he was Pakistani, but there weren't many Pakistani kids in the grammar school. Mm -hmm. And I remember he and I were often teased about the fact that like you and your Irish friend, mm -hmm. what are you doing with him? Paki stink, they smell curry. Mm -hmm. well, 
he wear he did put on an ointment and it was unusual for me but i'm sure i smelled of cow's milk so who was i to but we kicked around for for ages sadly i lost touch with him but um yeah there's a lot loaded in name um on to uh, resilience quotient, RQ, coping with adversity, setbacks and disappointments. You described how you've had, you know, business setbacks where it almost destroyed you, your business, your family, a whole load of things went down. What, what is your sort of lesson about coming back and, and having the adversity to pick yourself off, dust yourself off, learn from that, have it as a teachable moment, as someone describes it to me? What, what's your one bit of wisdom? Yeah, I think I think it's founded in that word entrepreneurship, Jonathan, because I think the societal expectation of entrepreneurship is in is that it's entrepreneurship in a business context. You know, whether it's, you know, famous entrepreneurs or, or just representations of success as an entrepreneurial person. But I think what the things I've gone through and, and, and learned from and the resilience I think I've built up from that is that entrepreneurship is nothing to do with the business. It's absolutely to do with the personal transformation of self in going through that journey. And so business just becomes a vehicle. It, it's a transference of value from your idea to solving someone else's need and getting a reward back for that, whether that's in terms of revenue to generate profit or whether it's social impact or whatever the outcome is. Um, so I see business as, 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 as simply that. It's an entity that where I'm in control of that entity or our, or our team are all collectively in control. And what we're doing is doing the best that we can to create that solution for that individual and getting some reward for that. And in that process, we were going to go through a lot of different things that are going to shape us. It's going to test our character. It's going to test our aptitude. It's going to test our skills. It's going to test how we see ourselves, our psychology, our mental health, our physical. But through that, you will learn so much more about yourself and each other than if you didn't go through that. And so resilience and entrepreneurship for me go hand in hand from that personal transformation standpoint, right. rather than the, you know, the, the, the nominal um, business program focus on it. Very good. Yeah, completely agree with you, Joel. That, that's a very nice insight, an angle I hadn't thought of, but I agree with completely. On to the last two, brand and then legacy. Um, how have you got... Um, because your brand, your reputation, your image and your impact is what people say about Joel Blake OBE when you're not in the room. Mm. So how have you found out about yourself through 360, through any coaching, through anything like that? How have you got real feedback through a third party about how you're really doing, how you land with people and what's working and you should leverage and what would make you even better if you were to do it? Yeah, well, over the years, I've done a you know, number of kind of, you know, do the disco and psychometric testing and you, you kind of get that kind of approach on it. But I think the real kind of feedback has come from those who are not in my inner circle. I, I, you know, in my experience, I've found that the more successful I've become is the more family and friends will tell you how well you are and how great you are and you're great because of this, you're great because of that. Um, but I often now these days seek advice from people who are not connected to me. Um, and so I do that by just asking the question, if it's if it's a client that I'm worked with personally or what have you, I'm like, what is it that you liked about me and, and how it's helped you and try and get that real direct um, feedback from the individual person. 
where I've not been able to get that direct feedback, it's been through the, the impact of the, res, of the results that I've tried to create for others and then see what people say on the back of that. So, you know, have I really tried and helped you to kind of move your dial in what you need to do for yourself? And if so, how did I do that? What is it about me or what we've, I've been able to support you with that's made that work for you? And then I look for consistencies in what people say, you know, and, and then I try and, and what I do do, I should say, is then look at those consistencies and link that against my values and do they resonate? So integrity and authenticity are the two things that I think are me and what other people have said about me through those investigations. Yeah. Um, and so that's my kind of ready reckoner, if you like. It's just yeah. making sure that what I do, people get it, they feel it, and it resonates back with my values. If, I've, if that's correct, then that's, there's my brand. Good, good. Which leads us nicely onto the, the last of the elements before we talk about a, a book and uh, your top tip, which is what would you like your legacy to be in your lifetime? Not, not after you're dead, but just in your lifetime. How would you like to make a difference? You know, we're into stewardship and leaving things better than we found them. What would you like to be your legacy? So if we had that kind of proverbial tombstone and the reading, um, I would love it to say, he was the rebel in a suit. Oh. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you why I say that from a viewpoint that um, the suit for me represents tradition, it represents heritage, it represents the norm, it represents how things have always been. Um, it, the suit has come mainly from my father to a degree. I've seen my dad out of a suit maybe five times in my 40 years on this earth. Like, because my, my dad has always seen the suit as a representation of your standard and your principle. And if you do not have respect and look for yourself, then people will treat you how they take you. So the suit has been in a, a representation of that. Mm. So when I look at that kind of sense of standard and principle, as well as tradition and a heritage view on it, I see that as the norm. The rebel bit is that that's the norm and that's great, but the norm has a time limit because at some point it's going to be innovated or it's going to be disrupted. It's going to be changed. It's going to need to change. So the rebel is the moment I feel comfortable in those traditional spaces is the moment I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. And so I like to be known for always being a person that's complete, always asking those questions. I'm never afraid to ask the hard questions. I'm never afraid to be asked the hard questions, um, but challenging the norm because that's where the learning is. You know, we often get comfortable because that's what we're used to. You know, diversity inclusion is about let's protect what we're used to. Ooh, that difference over there, I'm not quite sure. Well, there's some great stuff that happens on the other side of that fence. So just climb over the fence. And if not, let's find a way of breaking the fence down. Because where you're staying, the moment you stand still, you're going backwards because everything's got to go past you at some point. So you might think you're all comfortable, but you're actually going backwards in time. So for me, rebel in a suit, that's my tombstone. That's the legacy yep. I'd like to be left with. Great one. So the last two things, um, a book, you talked about a book that you'd recommend to people, which book would you choose? And what is it about that book that you think people would find interesting uh, on the theme of leadership? I think a book that I've read and constantly reread over the years is a book called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. It's a, it's a really great book because it talks about that extra inch, that extra mile, that slight edge of, of doing that extra bit. Excuse me, I think, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, if you go from zero to 100, 
great, lovely, that's wonderful. But that, it's about that 101. It's not about the 100, it's about the 101. And that 101 could disrupt the full 100 done previously if you're not aware of the power of that. And it's always going, it's that extra mole that you do for your customers. It's that extra conversation that you have. I mean, you know, in the fintech space for me as a business, you know, it's about being extra different in a very competitive space. Like we are different and we can evidence that. But once we recognize that, we need to think about the next level of difference. We have to keep innovating and keep continuing to be pushing. So The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson is, is the book for me at the moment again. I love that. And I'm going to read it because, uh, or no, I'll, I'll hopefully there's an audio version. I'll listen to it. Yep. Um, and I was reminded of a quote the other day, which is relevant for what you've just said, Joel, which is there are no traffic jams on the extra mile. There are no traffic <laughs> jams. Love that. And I like that one. Joel Blake, OBE, thank you very much. It's been great having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series. Stay with us. Thanks, Thank Joel. Thank you for your time. Appreciate that. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.